This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Katie Pauls and Fraser Nelson. Now, in the last few minutes, King Charles announced that he will not be attending the first state visit planned to Paris on Sunday. Fraser, talk us through what's happened and what's changed this decision. Well, the King was due to arrive on Sunday and there was going, there was going to be this lavish dinner planned in Versailles. There were other such big moments of choreography as well. I mean, Charles and Camilla were going to lay a wreath in the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. Camilla and, and, and Brigitte Macron were due to open the new Manet and Degas exhibition in the Musée d'Orsay together. Lots of moments of statehood which are absolutely primed for disruption by the protesters who have turned over the streets of Paris right now. The scenes have been really quite extraordinary. Yesterday alone, there were 450 people arrested and 400 police and security officials injured, 14 of them in hospital. And Macron had this rather confrontational television address which has sought to inflame the situation further. And it was looking likely that if the king was going to arrive, that every move he made would be a target for serious disruption by the protesters. Uh, There were calls by Macron's opponents to cancel the dinner in Versailles. There were even reports in the French press that the Elysee Palace was trying to change venues to somewhere a bit more secure, like you might have in the G8 summits, where there's lots of protesters kept at a safe distance. All over, this could have been a disaster for Macron. He, he loves his Versailles state dinners. I think Putin was regaled with such a treat by Macron not so long ago. And he, I guess this is humiliating for France, there's no doubt about it, but probably less humiliating than having the king turn into a focus of the protesters' wrath. So, Katie, is he still sticking with his plans to go abroad? Yes, and I think this is why, not only in the statement from the palace, which makes clear that this was at the request of the French government, that the cancellation, the decision to postpone it, it says that the trip to Germany is still going ahead as planned. So it is not anything on the UK end. This is all about problems in France, which means that it's not possible right now to host the king. And talking of the king, he played a a starring role in the Windsor framework which was unveiled at the end of last month. Uh, Fraser, you've written a column for The Telegraph today suggesting you can kind of see the the green shoots of recovery. It could be springtime for Rishi. Talk us through this thesis and um, the events of the last week, because it's been a quite good week for the Prime Minister, right? It has, yes. And we were... I had a bit of a wobble when the DUP decided not to vote for his... um, a so-called Windsor framework. I can't believe he got away with calling it that, by the way, enlisting the king in this. But, you know, what can I say? Politically, he, he pulled it off. Mm. Now, I can now see, in a way that I couldn't until probably a couple of weeks ago, a route for the Conservatives to win the next election. Previously, I'd thought it was all but impossible. It was like, say, I don't know, 10 to 1 or less than that chance of so doing. I mean, there were 20 points behind in the polls. Now, you can look through post-war polling and find that only once before has anybody ever recovered from that position. But I've changed my mind, rather, not completely changed. I now I would now say it's about 1 in 3 chance the Tories have got. Still more likely to lose than win. But I think it's a one in three chance because I think that Sunak might pull it off. Now one of the things that I found mysterious all year is why he promised to stop the boats. Not to reduce the amount of arrivals, but to actually stop the small boat arrivals. To me it was 
a very rash promise, which might have gone down well amongst uh, focus groups, but would be impossible to actually pull off, um, given that the, we've made no progress at all in stopping the boats. But then I worked out what was happening to the Albanians. Now, not so long ago, Albanians were 45% of small boat arrivals. Absolutely huge. At one stage, uh, we were told that I think 2% of Albanian men were in Britain applying for asylum. And they were just, the system wasn't able to cope. And we were um, approving the majority of their claims, while France and Sweden were both rejecting anybody from Albania as being not worthy of asylum not qualifying for it. But then Sunak agreed a deal with the Albanian Prime Minister just before Christmas and said from now on we're going to be flying back every single week Albanians whose claims are going to be processed in Albania. Now the moment he did that, Albanian arrivals have fallen off a cliff. So no longer are they half of their arrivals, they're now a tiny proportion. And this goes to show something important, that you're up against a business model here. The people traffickers are rational actors, they're criminal, but they're rational. And they are charging between 5 and 15 grand for transit. People paying that money are not rich people. They're scraping together every penny they've got. They're not going to spend that money if there is a serious, say, one in three chance of deportation. So as soon as you tell Albanians that there is a realistic chance, in fact, a probability that they're going to end up sent back to Albania, then nobody's going to fork out three grand for the channel part of the, the journey or five grand for the um, complete journey. So as soon as you manage to get the flights taking off, this breaks the business model. Now, if it can work with Albania, in the same way that it happened with the lorry smuggling, you may remember a few years ago, the big problem was the gangs were putting people in the back of, of cargo lorries. We wouldn't really hear about it unless they, they were found dead in some of the chilled lorries, which did tragically happen. But then they got scanners, and then the scanners made the risk of detection quite high, and then all of a sudden you had a collapse by about three quarters of a number of people trying to come through the um, channel. So if we managed it with Albania, I think it's plausible that Sunak will get the Rwanda deal up and running. It's going through the high court has ruled in the government's favour, it's being appealed, that appeal is being heard at the end of next month. But it's plausible that we will see a flight for Rwanda taking off in June or July, and I think that will have quite a big deterrent effect on the business model is going to make people think twice about choosing Britain as a destination for their five grand to 15 grand getaway plan. Katie, in that phrase, sort of alludes to the fact that migration is probably, it's probably been the small boats, is probably the most challenging of Sunak's five challenges uh, he set himself. How confident are the government that you think that they're going to be able to tackle this challenge? And what can we expect in the Commons coming up next week with the return of migration as the main issue rather than Brexit as it has been this week? So I think Fraser's laid out how this could work to the government's benefit if things go right. But I think there's still a lot of trepidation and concern about how you make that pledge a reality. I think some around Rishi Sunak, when he was coming up with those priorities, was saying, do you really want to say stop the boats? (laughs) I think, you know, it's by far the hardest one to do of those. It speaks to the electoral importance of the issue, that that it's something that despite this decided to grip and not just say and also come front and centre on as opposed to just leaving it to his home secretary um, you know, it's something that he is trying to personally own I think that as you say we have the illegal migration bill back in the commons next week that would be a situation in which you start to see some amendments at the moment I don't think there's too much concern about 
uh, some of the amendments coming through. One thing to look at for is if there's anything about trying to make the UK leave the ECHR, mm. which is, of course, what the right of the party often say you need to do in order to really grip the issue. Now, I think that the bill has gone far enough, and also some of the rhetoric Sirella Braveman has used, has meant that some on the right are now willing to see if this works on the unspoken basis, that if this doesn't make an impact, they think that Rishi Sunak will be pushed into a corner, mm-hmm. by which he'll have to put leaving the ECHR into the manifesto at the next election. Um, so they see the route to it, even if it's not one that the Prime Minister is currently spelling out. And of course, if it works, then I actually think it's only a small handful that would still say you need to leave the ECHR. I think the ECHR is a political court, and for that reason, I think it's not going to challenge. I mean, never has it challenged the primary legislation of any country, because it knows, ultimately, it cannot really overrule a country's democracy. If if the French vote for X and the ECHR says, no, you can't do X, then that's a crisis of legitimacy. But the other really important thing is it's not just Britain. The Rwanda deportation plan does not come from the blackness of Suella Braverman's heart. So this is being seen by an increasing number of countries as the modern way of combating the scourge of people traffickers. Germany recently has um, not just promised a sort of great deportation scheme, but has appointed a special minister who is going to be in charge of repatriation. So it's going to be deportation partnerships or some phrase like that. So he's going to be going around the world trying to find out what kind of countries will take back people from Germany. And the motto, the language they're using, is that they want to lower irregular immigration and increase legitimate asylum. Now, this is where I think Sunak's opportunity can be. I think he can promise to take in one or even two genuine asylum seekers for every person deported to Rwanda and make the point that this is not about being anti-refugee. This is about whether, not how, Britain discharges its obligations to the world's displaced. And this is about basically beating the new giant evil of our times, the the people traffickers. Once you beat them, there are many other better ways of helping refugees. And I think one of the reasons when you're looking at the boats bill next week, you know, this has come after just a, a series of fairly good events for Rishi Sunak. And that's why this week, I think, was tricky for the government because it had the potential to reopen lots of Tory strife, as we've spoken about earlier on the podcast. Instead, however, you know, someone might want to spin it a different way, but the Windsor framework, such a small number of Tory rebels, despite having both Boris Johnson and Liz Truss actually vote against it. And it would be evidence of a big following behind them both if you had a higher number following them up the hill to take a stand. Choosing to abstain, even if you don't like the deal, is not going all the way with them. And on the Windsor framework, you had a situation where lots of people... And I think we've talked about on this podcast, suggested it was too much of a risk for Rishi Sunak to take on. And I think in number 10, there is a sense of vindication. Now, let's see if it's short-lived or... Because, or, you know, things can turn. But I think there is a sense of vindication that um, people said, oh, these things are too tricky to do. You shouldn't do that. You shouldn't, you know, try and do anything in your party which might upset them. And actually, the fact that that has come to pass in a successful way means that I think that... Coming to the end of this week, that is viewed as far more significant than Boris Johnson's appearance before the Privileges Committee in terms of the political perspective. Of course, the problem for Rishi Sunak is we could have the Boris Johnson saga rumble on for weeks to come, potentially a by-election, which is just going to create a Boris Johnson circus, as I write in the magazine this week. But it does mean, when you're looking ahead of what the government's going to do, there's just much more of a sense of positivity amongst Tory MPs at the moment, and... That's not to say I think people think they're going to win the next election right now, but 
there's two polls, one saying the Labour lead has reduced to 10 points, one today saying it's reduced to 15 points. Now, there are other polls saying it's still above 20, so there's, there's obviously something quite interesting happening at the moment. But I think given you've had, you know, a, a month ago, very stable 20-something point leads, it does point to something changing. And there's a question when Rishi Sunak's approval ratings are going up, that would eventually feed in. I think in, in government, the sense where they think that they really might be able to put some pressure on Labour would be over the summer. I think that's where they would hope the personal approving rating starts to feed into the headline party ratings. And you can start to see a scenario to Fraser's column where if the Labour lead was consistently 10 points and then got to single digits, I think that would spark concern, perhaps not in the leader's office, because I think his Starmer's team have always been realistic that this lead was is very soft, you know, you shouldn't be complacent. But I think definitely amongst Labour MPs, because they were so critical of Keir Starmer just, you know, a year or so ago saying he's too bland, there's not enough vision. And everyone's been very quiet because they've been so far ahead. If that starts to change, you can expect a, a much wider conversation about what exactly they should be focusing on when they're having quite a safety, steady first campaign. Well, you bring up the question of Labour, and that's fascinating. I mean, Fraser, I, would you suggest that in recent weeks, actually, Labour's response, for instance, to the budget has been you know, somewhat muted. They've actually been forced to concede a few areas of their own, such as on Keir Starmer's pension, such as in the fact that the childcare policy got nicked with no political credit for the party. Yeah, I think that Labour is beginning to run out of ammunition. I mean, you, you're right, James, in saying that the Tories stole Labour policy and, and basically subsidising people who are perfectly wealthy. I, I, I find it quite shocking that somebody on 95 grand can get subsidised by your average taxpayer to, to, for, for childcare. But set that aside, I also find it astonishing that Sir Keir Starmer was so idiotic as to make the main attack on pensions was it was he was saying that it was scrapping the cap on pension contributions. He was the language he used was that it was a huge giveaway to some of the very wealthiest. So this is what Keir Starmer is saying to the government. Look, this is absolutely outrageous. All these wealthy people, you're abolishing the cap on their pensions. And then it emerges that there is a literally a, a, a one-man pension scheme applicable only to Keir Starmer for his time as director of public prosecutions, where that's where he got his knighthood from. He was on 200 grand a year there. So there was this, 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 this sort of specific deal only for him that gave him a kind of pension deal, which nobody else in the public sector got. And he had this from 2008 to 2013. And yet he didn't think, he didn't have political nous to work out that if he did benefit from this incredibly generous and completely, I would argue, indefensible one-man get-out scheme, it maybe wasn't the best idea for him to be accusing the Tories of letting other people have what he enjoyed. Now, this is embarrassing in and of itself, but it also made me think that Keir Starmer isn't quite up with the um, Hamza Yusuf League of Gaffes, but I think he might be somebody who might be bungling rather a lot. I think we might find in the next 18 months, as the attention goes more and more to the Labour Party, what they're doing, what they're saying, how they're behaving, that they might not stand up very well to the scrutiny which is now starting to be applied. It was applied after the budget, and Keir Starmer was found out uh, very, very quickly with this disgraceful pension scheme he's got. And it wouldn't surprise me if there are many similar disclosures to come out of the woodwork. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening to Coffee House Shots. Coffee House Shots.